right, everyone. Does anyone have a handout? Excellent. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, thank you for your word that you speak to us. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Um, your promise is that we could see your face in Scripture. Um, and we pray that uh, we would understand your character. Uh, we would know more deeply your love for us through Scripture. Even these really um, lesser-known, uh, obscure passages in the Old Testament, we see the beauty and the, and the majesty of them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, we are doing a uh, uh, Sunday School series on the three major feasts of the Old Testament. And they are the Feast of uh, Passover. Uh, each, of the, each, each of the feasts actually have multiple names. But Passover, Weeks, and Tabernacles. And they're called Pilgrimage Feasts. Who from uh, last week can tell us why they're Pilgrimage Feasts? What does pilgrimage mean? So you have a long journey. Yeah, so you have to travel. Why do you have to travel with these feasts? Why, why is that a distinctive feature of these feasts? Can anyone remember from last week? You, you, yeah, the, uh, the, the requirement was that you had to go to Jerusalem. Uh, these feasts uh, were to be observed in Jerusalem. So the whole nation, uh, pious, devout Jews... Would, would stream into Jerusalem during these feasts. And so the city of Jerusalem would swell multiple times in size, which, which, which is why they are, um, uh, in terms of the logistics, why they're the backdrop of major events in the New Testament. Because basically, suddenly you have this enormous swarm of people, right, in an otherwise smaller city. Um, we also said that the, the three feasts follow the agricultural calendar, so that basically uh, Passover marks the beginning of spring. Weeks uh, marks the beginning of harvest. And then tabernacles marks the end of harvest. Right. And that this is a way to regulate, um, you know, most Israelites being uh, farmers, this was a way to regulate uh, their lives to their life in God, right? And um, the Feast of Weeks marks the beginning of harvest. It's also called the Feast of Harvest. Uh, logically, it's called the Feast of First Fruits. We'll talk about that a little bit. And we're going to basically look at Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus being one of the all-time most neglected books of the Bible. Um, we're going to look at uh, Leviticus 23 verses 15 through 22, which uh, uh, is the most uh, extensive description of the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks, uh, there are three separate descriptions of the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament, uh, in the Torah, but Leviticus being the most extensive, so we're going we're to study that. And let me read to you verse 15. And so we're going to sort of go verse by verse, and I'll comment on it, and, and, um, and we'll look at it. So, you shall count seven full weeks. From the day after the Sabbath, this is the, the Sabbath of Passover, okay? Uh, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. All right, so this is talking about when do you observe the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks is seven weeks. Um, 
seven being uh, a very symbolic number in the Bible. It's, it's a number of fullness. So seven full weeks. This is why it's called the Feast of Weeks, right? Because um, it's, it's, it's talking about the, the time, the, the, the gap between uh, Passover and the, the second uh, pilgrimage feast. And it's, uh, it's, if you count it inclusively, it's 50 days. Because 7 times 7 is 49, right? But this is the day after Passover, so in kind of inclusively, it's the 50th day. So the Feast of Weeks is the 50th day from Passover. Um, and in Hebrew, it's uh, Shavuot. In Greek, this is significant, in Greek, it was called Pentecost. Pentecost meaning 50th. So it was called the 50th day. Already you can see maybe the connection to the New Testament, but hold your horses, we'll get there, okay? Um, so it's the 50th day. Let's read on. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven, right? In contrast to um, Passover, right? Uh, no leaven. So here, leaven. As first fruits to the Lord. So the Feast of Weeks is the beginning of the wheat harvest. Um, actually, there was a series of harvests, right? So uh, through this very long period of harvesting, um, uh, they would plant all kinds of different uh, grains, you know, barley and so forth. The wheat harvest was the first one. So at the beginning of the first harvest, they would make bread out of new grain, right? So you harvest. You, you start beginning the harvest, and the harvest is a rolling, uh, rolling multi-month period. But the very first sort of grains, you would make bread, two loaves of bread. It says two tenths of an ephah. That's basically a pound of grain. I have no idea what a pound of grain looks like. Uh, um, but uh, you make two, so I suppose two fairly large loaves of bread. And these loaves are the first fruits. So this is a metaphor, right? Uh, first fruits. So, what is the first fruits? What, what is that as in terms in terms of agricultural reference? What what does that mean? What is that describing? First harvest. Yeah. So you you have the whole harvest, right? It, but it's a rolling harvest. So the first part of the harvest that's the first fruits, right? Uh, you know, imagine you 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 have some sort of you have a vineyard or you have some sort of a uh, fruit uh, farm, right? The very first of the fruits, that's the first fruits, okay? So you're supposed to wave them. It says wave offering. Uh, you, you bring them to Jerusalem, and then you wave them, these two loaves of bread. I suppose that's why they're two, right? Because you put them one in each hand. And then you present them before the Lord. And it's very significant that the, the offering that you're supposed to bring to God is the first fruits. So, so, these are your first fruit tithes. You're supposed to bring them to Jerusalem. You don't eat them. You give them to the priests. This is the priest. This is for the priest to support the priests. But it's very so. It's an offering to God, but it's very significant that it's the first fruits, because basically, if it was the case that um, you have the whole harvest, and then you wait until all the harvest comes in. 
And then, after the harvest comes in, you take a portion of the grain, and then you make the bread, and then you give it to the Lord. That's very different than giving the Lord the first fruits. Why is that? Because in an agricultural society, right, in a rolling harvest, the very first uh, harvest, the very first um, uh, aspect of the harvest, you're not completely sure you're going to get the whole thing, right? So what you're doing is an incredible statement of faith. The very two, the first pieces of bread that you make, you don't get to eat it. You give it to God first. Um, I suppose it's the equivalent of this. You, you go to college, you work hard, you get your first job. Ah, you get your first paycheck. Your first paycheck, you give it to God. You don't get to use it. You don't get to pay down your college debts. <laughs> it's sort of that equivalent. Okay, So it's a significant act of faith. And what you're doing is you're giving it to God as an expression of thanks. And basically, the Feast of Weeks, therefore, is Thanksgiving Day for the Jewish people, right? You're thanking God as the provider of all things. Because what you're saying is that this, this harvest is not from my own effort. It's a gift from God. This is a very profound sort of reorientation of the heart. Because the natural mode of the human heart is what? To look at the things that you have, and then you say to yourself, I did it. It is my genius. It's my effort. It's uh, my own doing. But rather, the Feast of Weeks uh, teaches us, guides our hearts to say, no, it's God's gift. And because it's the gift of God, we need to express thanks to him um, as the ultimate source of life. Um, so that's very significant. It's basically Thanksgiving Day. Let's continue on, verse 18. <clears throat> and you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year with the, uh, seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams, and they shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a, as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be... Okay, so let me just summarize all of that. It's a basically a series of sacrifices, right? Not each person, by the way, because this would be an enormous amount. This would be like a, a, small, a small fortune. This is the entire congregation of Israel is offering these animals, right? As various burnt offerings, thank you offerings. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priests, right? So this is for the, not, not for the people to eat, consume, but for the uh, support of the priests. And you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations, right? So what do we see here? So, uh, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks, not only do you bring your two breads, right, to express thanks to God for the grain, but you're offering all of these animal sacrifices. What's going on here? This is a worship service. Um, it says holy convocation. Does anyone remember what the word convocation means? Test from last week. Yes, coming together. It's an assembly, right, being called together. So everyone's being, by the way, the word uh, convocation basically means to assemble. The, the, the word assemble, the Greek word for that is ecclesia, right? So ecclesia, the church, right, is 
this is the Old Testament church. This is, everyone's gathering together. This is corporate worship. And it's, the day, it's a day of rest, right? It's the Sabbath day. It's a Sabbath day for the people of God. They're offering sacrifices. They're, they're receiving ministrations from the priests. And so what, is, what this is saying, therefore, is that the beginning of harvest is a time to thank God and it's a time to worship God, right? He is uh, the central priority of your life. It's a time to take a pause in the midst of all this bounty and to um, praise God, to love God. Let's keep going on. So this is very interesting. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So uh, let me graphically draw it out. If you are a farmer, and this is your field, this is a, a very dying marker. So this is your field, um, and you send your workers out into the field to gather, to bring in the harvest, you're, you're, you're to leave the edge alone. Does that make sense? Don't harvest that part. Mm -hmm. And it says, don't harvest the gleanings. Mm -hmm. What is a gleaning? What, what are gleanings? Today, it's when like they're harvesting, it's, huh? and the machines leave the things behind, and yes. the tomatoes that people go and gather after. Yeah, so a gleaning is... is so you're an agricultural worker, right? And uh, you're gathering in the grain. Let's say you have a sickle. You're, you're cutting down the stalks of grain. And uh, inevitably, human beings not being you know, perfect machines, there's going to be uh, bits of the harvest that fall to the ground. Um, you would, after you harvest, or af as you're gleaning, and you, I mean, after you harvest the grain, you would also scoop up what was dropped on the ground. Or maybe this is a better better imagery equivalent. Let's say you're picking apples, right? So you're picking apples into a basket, but some of the apples fall on the ground. What's on the ground is called the gleanings. So God specifically says, don't harvest right up to the edge. Don't pick up any of the gleanings. Anything you drop, leave it on the ground. Why? It's for the poor. Okay. So what does this tell us? It tells us that the Feast of Weeks is in inherently connected to social justice. That amidst the bounty of the harvest, the people of God were to remember the poor. Right? As they're, as they're receiving all these, right? Because this is income. As they're receiving all this income and they're gathering in all their effort, all, all, I mean, all the investments they've made throughout the year, they're to remember the poor and this is a reminder to the people of God that their wealth is not their own. It belongs to God. And since it ultimately belongs to God, they are to share it with the poor. They are to share it with others. And it's interesting the way they're to share it. Because there are several ways you could do it. You could harvest the entire field, pick up all the gleanings, go right up to the edge... And then after you've harvested everything, you give a portion of that to the poor. Here you go. Here's a handout. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. How are you supposed to do it? You're supposed to give the poor a job, essentially. Because this portion that's left over, 
It's not like, you know, fruit that you just pick and eat. You have to harvest it. You have to do work. You have to put in labor. In other words, the poor is not supposed to get a handout. They're supposed to be given a means to earn a living for themselves, right? You're basically giving them a job. And if you look at uh, verse 22, right, it's an exact quotation of Leviticus 19, verse 9, which is part of the whole body of laws governing the economic structure of Israel. In other words, it's, it's a synecdoche. Right? Oh, can, does anyone know what a synecdoche is? Huh? Symbol? Close? A synecdoche is part for a whole, right? Like you say, nice wheels. You're talking about the whole car. You're just referring to the wheels, right? So this is a synecdoche. It's a reference to a single law, but actually it's a reference to the whole body of laws concerning social justice in Israel. So let me just run through all of them for you to remind you that, uh, to reorient us, that the economic structure of Israel was oriented towards equality and sharing. Okay? So... Let me just run through them. Number one, Levitic, uh, Numbers 26. Actually, I'm not going to do any of the references. They're written down for you, but let me just go through the principles to save time. Number one, there was an equal distribution of land. So, if you look at the book of Joshua, in the conquest of Israel, what happened was uh, they divided the land evenly. And every family got an equal portion of the land. This is very significant because in an agricultural society in the ancient world, uh, wealth was not liquid. People didn't have investments or equity shares in companies. All wealth, all wealth was based on land. So what does that mean when every family gets an equal portion of the land? Everyone is equally wealthy. That's how it begins. Then, the second law is non-transference of the land. Uh, maybe a better way to say it is that you cannot permanently transfer ownership of the land. Now, sometimes, so, so you have equal, so you have family A and family B. Family A is working the land, they're bringing in the harvest. Family B, maybe disaster happens. Maybe a disease strikes them, famine, whatever. So they fall into poverty and they have to sell their land or a portion of their land to make ends meet, right? Because again, you know, people don't have savings accounts. They have land. So you sell the land to family A because family A is doing well. That sale is a non-permanent contract. The reason being is because every 50 years, uh, all the original distribution of land is reset and restored, um, regardless of money owed or what, whatever. Do you know what I mean? So the title of the land always, always, always returns to the family. Every 50 years, basically, everyone is made equal. So let me give you an equivalent scenario. Suppose in the United States, Every 50 years, we take all the money that's, you know, in the treasury and the in stocks and everything, and we just evenly divide it by the number of people in the United States, and we just reset it. That's basically what happens. What is that 50th year called, by the way? The year of Jubilee. Yes. So that's the year of Jubilee, okay? Furthermore, furthermore, um, so what are you doing when you're selling the land? You're not really selling the land. You're leasing the land, right? Because you have to return it. By the way, um, as a matter of historical detail, uh, historians, biblical scholars believe that the year of Jubilee was actually never practiced. It was a theoretical construct within Torah because you know why? Because people were too greedy. They couldn't do it. They couldn't return it. 
After you buy the land, land is wealth. They, no one returned the land. But anyways, this is the way it's supposed to be. Okay, This is the way God wants it to be. Um, every seven years, the produce of the land was for the poor. So this is what Leviticus 25 says. Every seventh year, everything you grow on your land, you don't get to keep a, a, a single grain. All of it is for the poor. Right? So think about that. Imagine you. You're working, you're working, you're working. Every seventh year, your entire paycheck is for the poor. What else? Um, every harvest, a portion is set aside. So that's the gleaning laws. That's don't, 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 don't glean right up to the edge, right? Um, you're supposed to give interest-free loans to the poor. So this is a society in which there was no such thing as commercial loans. Um, they, they, they didn't have mortgage loans. All loans, all debts were related to po- were related to being in economic distress. You would only borrow money if you were in financial duress, financial trouble. And so God's law says in the Torah, anytime you give a loan, you may not charge any interest. Yes? Isn't that just for their people, though, the Israelites? Yeah, so this is an internal law okay. within God's people. No interest. This is The word for this is usury, right? Um, the medieval world had a big, like, oh, my goodness, you know, we can't have usury. So then they said, you know, non-Christians can do usury. So this is, you know, the, so then they corralled the Jewish people as bankers, right? Long story behind that. But in any case, it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with more. You may go get mortgages for your... For your um, for your house or whatever, Make, have commercial business loans with interest. The Bible is not talking about that. It's talking about the principle of how do you help your poor neighbor, and when they come to you for money, no interest. Okay, and so let's say they borrow ten thousand dollars from you, right? <laughs> let's say they borrow ten thousand dollars from you. It's an enormous sum of money. Every seven years, you forgive the debt. No matter how much you owe, how much they owe you, yes. Uh, so someone commented about how this could be uh, applied to the current economy, regards to the current U.S. economy. Do you mm-hmm. think this has any application? Because <laughs> I got in an argument with someone was coming from on the church, and we talked about the U.S. giving it up. So. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting and complicated. Yeah, that is that is an interesting complicated. It's a compelling thought experiment. Um, no nation has ever truly practiced the economic laws spelled out in the Torah because they are too radical. They are too um, uh, radically oriented towards equality because if these uh, Old Testament Torah laws were practiced, what would that mean? There is no such thing as concentration of wealth. No one can get truly wealthy. Why? Because every 50 years... You lose all the surplus wealth that you've built up because all original land distribution is reset. Every seven years, any loans that you make, boom, all that debt is forgiven. And constantly you're experiencing financial loss because the edges of your field is for the poor, the gleanings are for the poor, you're giving interest-free loans to the poor, many of which you have to forgive every seven years. It's impossible to become wealthy if God's laws is followed. And for the poor, it's impossible to have systemic, chronic, generational poverty. It would be impossible. Every 50 years, it would be reset. However, if you did this bits at a time, 
over a period of time constantly, yeah. you won't have the major yes. at the end because you weren't helping them become financially yes. independent. Sure. So, you know, you can control how vast that would be at the <laughs> end if you were with a good heart living. That's right, that's right, yeah. So, uh, it, it, it takes a lot of piety. Uh, this story comes into play, for example, in the story of Ruth. Boaz, being a deeply godly man, follows the Old Testament laws. The gleanings are for the poor. The edge of the fields are for the poor. That's why Ruth can even go there. Right. And then, in fact, when Boaz finds out that Ruth is a relative of his, he says to his workers, leave extra gleanings. Mm-hmm. Be extra sloppy, mm-hmm. right? Um, it takes enormous piety. In terms of can this be applied to the United States or any secular nation, I have serious doubts because... Inevitably, it will involve coercion. People are not going to be happy to give up their wealth. Um, you might have an emo- enormous revolution. <laughs> yes. um, this was this was done within Israel because they were they were uh, lo- this was their expression of love and obedience to God. Anyways, let me go on. Um, every every seven years, all debts were canceled, and then finally, the tithe was to be given. A large portion of the tithe was to be given to the poor. Um, actually, yeah, th- and then I want to pause now. And open up for questions. Uh, any further questions on, on this issue of, of, we, of harvest and social justice? Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll let Tony ask. Oh, Troy. I'm sorry, Troy. My son's name Tony. That's good. Um, what's this actually kind of goes back to the Passover that we did last week? Mm-hmm. So, was the so the unleavened bread? He says, "Do this as a memorial," right? Mm-hmm. In verse chapter twelve. So. But the actual Passover, where they killed the lamb, they don't. They don't do that. It's the un, it's the unleavened bread that is a, just to remember what happened. Right? So, do you understand my question? I can, uh, you mean does current Jewish no, no, Passover no, do they have lambs? No, back in that historical content, were they continually doing the Passover in regards to killing a lamb? And, oh, uh, and, and then you mean putting on the doorpost? Yeah, no, don't. that element, that ceremonial element, was only for the original first Passover. Right, but. The all subsequent Passovers had lambs. That's what, okay. Yeah. All right. yeah. Except so, the Christian Passover. Right, right. We have the Lamb of we God. We have the Lamb of God. Yeah. He's already been slaughtered and killed. And Amen. So they were looking forward. We kind of look back. Yeah, that's right. They're still waiting. Yeah, so do they still do this? They do. It's called Seder. Uh, Jewish, pious Jewish families will have Seder. Um, and uh, it will talk about the salvation of God. The lamb that was provided. Mm, Any question, uh, Sean? Oh yeah. So my question was actually um, on the um, verse eighteen when when we talked about all the uh, all the masses for the offerings. Mm-hmm. How was that distributed? Because it's it's from a whole nation. So did like the, like the, the the richest provide the, the biggest goat or lamb they needed? How was that? How how were the? Because it, it's you know it doesn't say. Yeah. So I was just mm-hmm. curious. I know. Uh, it doesn't say, but um, I'm sure there was some equitable way to do. So that's not each family then. No, okay. this, this, that would be a fortune. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, last one. So this is you might say this is kind of a, a form of socialism where there's equality for all people. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders. So, the the, the yeah. difference. <laughs> so this I would say the difference between socialism as it's conceived by Bernie Sanders and by uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, to sure. Uh, do we have socialism in the Bible? Yes and no. Right. We have voluntary um, religious 
socialism right. in the sense that, yes, it was radical socialism, it, it, distribution of wealth, but there was no coercion involved. They did it out of devotion right. and love for God. Uh, inevitably, secular versions of coercion involve, I mean, secular versions of, secu- of uh, socialism involves coercion. Right, right. It involves the police, police state, state confiscating your wealth right. against your will. So that's where a lot of people have problems. I think that is a compelling point because the, the, this is a covenant that the people of God have made with, the, the, that Israel made with God. Is the United States in a covenant relationship with God? Has the people agreed to this sort of agreement? No. The, the, the Israel agreed on Mount Sinai. We will obey. Right. They agreed. This, we will obey all these laws. The American people have never made such a contractual agreement. That's not to say that socialism is per se excluded by biblical teaching. A lot of people inspired by the Bible say what, what we observe here is socialism. Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, they do practice it, right. but inside the church. Inside the church. That's right. Yeah. So the church is supposed to be a radical community of sharing where there is no poor. Nobody gets left behind. Everyone takes care of each other. All right, so let's go on. Uh, Feast of Weeks in the New Testament. So uh, it happens in Acts chapter 2, right? In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, this is very uh, significant, very interesting, very profound. So first of all, um, as I said before, the, the so what happened was, a little bit of historical background, um, Greek-speaking Jews, would call pa- uh, the- uh, weeks Pentecost. Now, why were there so many Greek-speaking Jews? Um, it has to do with the diaspora. Can anyone tell me what the diaspora was? It's the Jewish... Dispersion. Dispersion, good. Yeah, diaspora is literally the Greek word for scattering, dispersion, right? Why was there a big dispersion? God, dis- God took apart the nation of Israel. Yes, but how? Uh, the other kingdoms. <laughs> so, uh, remember, what what is going on in first century Palestine? The Romans. Yeah, the Romans. But even before the Romans were, uh, were the various Greek empires, um, were the Babylonians, right, the Assyrians. So the people of God, under war, kind of like what's going on in Syria, right? You have massive war. What do you have in case of massive war? You have refugees. People fleeing the land, right? Because it's too bad, too hard to live there. So you had this massive exodus of Jewish people scattered throughout the entire known world, the Greek world. So um, in, 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 there are some estimates that the majority of Jewish people lived outside of Palestine. The majority of Jewish people were actually Greek-speaking, they had immigrated to other places, and now they were Greeks, essentially, in language and culture, but they were devout Jews. So these, these Greek-speaking Jews would call the Feast of Weeks Pentecost. And it says, when Pentecost arrived, it says, uh, it says the word arrived, right? So let me, let me look at that. It's an interesting word. The Greek word, therefore, uh, arrived is simple rao. So let me just give you a uh, transliteration. Okay. And it literally means to be filled up completely. The, the, it means to be fulfilled. And it's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor, right? And the metaphor is, imagine there's a, there's a, there's a jar. Oh, this is a terrible jar. But, <laughs> so, there, 
there's a jar, right? And it means that the water is filled up all the way to the end. That's what simple rao means. And it's an interesting word that Luke uses, right? The, the writer of uh, Acts. And it does mean that, it can mean that, that, that uh, uh, Pentecost has finally arrived, right? Um, that the time had finally come. But if that's what Luke meant, he could have used another word for it, a simpler, easier word. He uses actually an extremely interesting, rare word, an unusual word, this idea of being filled up. And so what is he saying? He's saying, I think a better translation is, when the day of Pentecost had been fulfilled. And so what he's saying is that the the Old Testament uh, Feast of Weeks had finally been fulfilled in the events of Acts chapter 2. And I think it's a really profound statement he's making, which is that, I'll just read the cup. Um, he's saying that the Feast of Weeks, he's saying the Feast of Weeks had an empty cup waiting for the water to be fulfilled. Does that make sense? And Acts chapter 2 was the fulfillment. And what he's saying, therefore, it's a really profound theology. He's saying that the Feast of Weeks had an implicit promise embedded inside of it that was waiting for its fulfillment, for its coming to lie, coming to truth. What is that fulfillment? Jesus speaks of it. Uh, Jesus speaks of it um, here in Matthew 9. He speaks of the kingdom of God as a harvest. And I want you to notice that, in fact, um, all throughout his ministry, he continually refers to his ministry as a harvest. So, for example, Matthew chapter 9. Let me read it to you. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he's doing ministry. He sees all of these people. And they're in, they're, they're, uh, in they're, um They're lost. They, they need care. And so what does he say about the people? In verse 37, and then he said to his disciples, he says, the harvest is plentiful, right? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his, into his harvest. So what is he saying? He's saying that the harvest is people, Right? That gospel ministry is laborers, agricultural workers, come going out into the field and bringing in the harvest. And let's ask this question. Now, is Jesus simply evoking an agricultural metaphor? Jesus uses agricultural metaphors all the time. What does he say to his disciples? He says, You're going to, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So he's, he's, he's comparing it to fishing. Is he simply saying, oh, here's some, uh, you guys are mostly farmers. So it's like a harvest. Partially, Yes. But I think the other side of it is, I think Jesus is deliberately, explicitly thinking about the Feast of Weeks. Okay? Um, why is that? Because Luke tells us that the Feast of Weeks had finally been fulfilled. The Old Testament also talks about this idea of this enormous harvest of people coming in. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 2. There's so many passages like this. Let me just pick one, Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, the mountain, what is he talking about? This is the, um, what is the mountain of the house of the Lord? Let me, let me throw it out to you guys. Sinai? Huh? Sinai? Sinai? Well, where's the house of the Lord then? So the answer would be no. 
Any, who, who can name this mountain with the house of the Lord built on this mountain? Jerusalem. But what's the mountain? Zion. Zion, right? The Temple Mount. It's really a hill, but, you know. <laughs> you look it up, it's not that high. <laughs> it's not that high. <laughs> We're not talking about Everest. Um, so he's talking about Jerusalem, right? So this, the city of Jerusalem shall be established as the highest of the mountains, right? This is a metaphorical spiritual imagery, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and then what's going to happen to this highest of all mountains, Mount Zion, Jerusalem? Isaiah says, and all the nations will flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we, we may walk in his paths. So Isaiah, the prophet, sees into the future, right, by the Spirit of God, and he, he sees that there's going to be this enormous multitude of people, this great harvest coming into Jerusalem. But specifically, what does he say? He says, All the nations... He's thinking about this great diversity of peoples, um, uh, different languages, different tribes. And so it's not just people per se, it's different kinds of people. It's, it's a multi-ethnic people, and that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. Um, the Acts chapter 2 is the first fruits of God's great harvest. Because if you, we're going to read Acts chapter 2, I want you to notice that all the nations come pouring into Jerusalem. And the reason for this is because of the diaspora. Because of the diaspora, because of these terrible conquests and wars in Palestine, the Jewish people were thrown out to the uh, to the known world, and then they would speak to their neighbors. They would evangelize their their friends, and so a great many people called God fearing God fearers. These are Gentiles who love who love the God of Israel. You have Hellenite. You have a. a uh, Greek-speaking Jews, Hellenized Jews, you have God-fearers, and they would observe the Feast of Weeks. They're reading the Torah. They want to obey the Torah. So from all over the known world, they're pouring into Jerusalem at Pentecost, and this is when they hear the gospel. And I think it's really interesting that this couldn't have happened if two things didn't come into play. Number one, God specifically says there are three pilgrimage feasts, uh, the Feast of Weeks, I want you to come to Jerusalem. Why doesn't God just say, you can celebrate it at home? He says, I want you to come specifically to Jerusalem. He's setting things up. Then secondly, why was there conquests? And I think this gets to the whole issue of why does God allow suffering? And this is uh, not enough time for me to explore this at full length. Part of the answer, though, is why was there suffering? Why was there war? Why was there terrible destruction of land and people and families destroyed and ripped apart. Partly, it's so that God's people was scattered to the whole world and they would talk to their neighbors and friends and then on Pentecost, right, in Acts chapter 2, they would all come streaming back, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 2 and they would hear the gospel um, so that God's word would be fulfilled. God was orchestrating all things. Do you see? He's setting up Feast of Weeks. He's setting up the diaspora. And he's setting it up for this. Acts chapter 2. Let's read it together. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them, gave them utterance. 
Now there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So the apostles, this is Pentecost, right? So remember, this is 50 days after the death of Jesus, right? Um, the apostles are in Jerusalem, and they receive this commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And undoubtedly, the, the apostles are like, oh, this is how is this going to be possible? Then Pentecost comes, and the city swells. Remember, sometimes it, was, it swelled 50 times its population. All of these other nationalities come into Jerusalem, and then suddenly the apostles are given this, in, this incredible supernatural gift of being able to speak, not just Aramaic, which would be their sort of their native language that they would use, suddenly they could speak all these different kinds of languages, supernaturally, and they're preaching the gospel, and so all these nations here, and at the sound, and at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each of them was hearing them speak in their own language, in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are these not, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Remember, Galileans were like the country hicks of Palestine, right? Are they not Galileans? And how is it that we that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then and then and then he goes on to a list, right? So let me let me just draw a map of the world really fast. So oh dear, okay. So this would be this would be the Mediterranean. <laughs> This is Arabia. This is Egypt. This is Turkey. This is Iraq. This is Iran. Okay? This is the known world, okay? What does it say? It says, verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. Parthian, Medes, and Elamites are from Iran. Mesopotamia would be Iraq. Okay? They don't speak Greek, by the way. They, I, I, I can't recall what would they speak. But they would speak uh, Persian, right? They would speak uh, not Arabic, but something, whatever the Mesopotamians were speaking. Um, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia are here. Provinces in Turkey. Uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, that's also in Turkey. Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. So all the way here, um, North Africa. Um, and visitors from Rome, so Italians are coming, both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes basically means converts, God-fearers. Cretans, Cretans are not like creepy people, but um, oh, poor Cretans, it's like an island, a Greek island, south of Greece. Um, don't say Cretans, it's unfair to the Cretans. Um, Cretans <laughs> and, Ara- and Arabians, so Arabs, um, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Verse 37, Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children, and for, those, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and they were added to that, that day about 3,000 souls. So 3,000 people from all over the known world, speaking a multitude of languages, they believed the gospel in a single day. A single day. This is, and then Luke says, 
the Feast of Weeks has finally been fulfilled. This is the first fruits. What does first fruits mean? First fruits is the very first um, portion of the harvest that is to come. The rolling harvest. The harvest continues. That's why we do evangelism. That's why we do church planning. That's why we do missions, right? And the other thing I want to point out is the the vital importance of multi-ethnicity among the people of God. Notice, it isn't just a million Jews became believers, right? But it's people from all nations. Why is that important? Um, So let me here press the importance of multi-ethnicity in the church. Here at IGC, we don't want to just be a mono-ethnic or monocultural church. We want to be a multi-ethnic church because this honors God and this fulfills scripture because otherwise we're going to be a country club. Right? Because what is a country club? Country club is people with common interests all gathering together, cozy and comfortable. No, we want to discomfort ourselves and it gives glory to God because what does it say? It says that God, the gospel, that Jesus Christ is true regardless of whether you're Persian, whether you're an Arab, whether you're a Greek or a Roman. And this is ultimately the hope of humanity. There's world, there's wars all the time. There's conflicts all the time. What hope is there for peace in this world? Only the gospel, which reconciles people to each other um, so that humanity lives in peace with each other. And that's the end of my class. Any, any, any questions? Yes, I have a question. Yes. Um, Going back to uh, the last part of the Feast of Weeks and social justice yeah. ties to be given to poor, I was just wondering, at that particular time, were the Levites considered poor since they were supported by the tithing you know, to the priests and so forth? Were they considered poor? It's well? interesting. The, the, there are 12 tribes, right? Um, the tribe of Joseph is split into two, mm-hmm. uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, right? And then, because uh, he had two sons, right? And then uh, the Levites are not given any land. And then uh, they're, they're told, your portion, um, the Lord is your portion. God is your inheritance. God is your land. So the Levites were perpetually dependent on the almsgiving and the tithing of the people of God. And so uh, every time you come and bring a sacrifice to Jerusalem, um, you wouldn't just destroy the animals. You would give a portion of it, you would burn it to God, and the rest of the animal goes to the priests. You would bring grain offerings, you would bring uh, monetary offerings. That goes to the Levites, the, uh, the priestly class. So they're not poor. Um, they're the same, I suppose. They're, they're, but their source of income is radically different than everyone else. Uh, it being dependent on this whole system of offerings and tithes. The, the, in, if you look at the Old Testament, the tithe, the offerings were given to um, four classes of people. They were given to um, orphans, they were given to widows, um, foreigners, uh, sojourners. Uh, those three classes of people all have in common, they were economically vulnerable and weak. Right? They, 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 were, they were subject to poverty. And then the fourth class of people is you give to the Levites. Not that they were weak, mm-hmm. but that's their source of income. So were the, were the Levites, were they the one who distributed to the poor? Yes, they okay. were. Okay. They would be the ones. So the Levites weren't all concentrated in Jerusalem. They would all take turns. Um, that's, for example, the story you have with, uh, uh, at the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1, is it? What is his name? Uh, is it, um, I'm, I'm forgetting, uh, John the Baptist's father. Uh, Zachariah? Zacchaeus. Is that Zacchaeus? Luke? <laughs> All right, all right. Anyways, right? 
Um, he, if you notice, he's preparing to serve in the temple. That's because he normally lives in his village, and then they would take a rotation, and they would come in and, and serve in the temple. Right? So normally the Levites lived among the people, and they were actually, they, they would act as pastors, they were public health officials, they would examine people if they had leprosy, they would distribute alms to the poor. Um, they were essentially pastors. Thank you. Um, so when the, when Israel was under exile under different rules, yeah. you know, basically, were they, were they able were they allowed to conduct their ceremony religious, you know, or to varying degrees? Um, there, uh, if you look at, uh, for example, Daniel, the end of Daniel, he talks about this terrible, terrible period of persecution, the abomination of abominations setting up set up in Jerusalem. So what happened was the um, uh, there will be a Greek dictator tyrant, Antiochus Epiphanes. He tried to outlaw the Jewish religion. He tried to forcefully convert the Jews to uh, Greek Greek, uh, religious belief. Um, So it was on and off. The Romans, for the most part, were actually quite tolerant. All they asked for, all they asked for, you can observe your religion, but you have to recognize the supremacy of the emperor. Just say, Kaiser is Lord, and you're at peace. The Christians... Had the, the foundational belief of the Christians is Yesu is Lord. Mm. Jesus is Lord. Boom. The hammer of Rome comes down on, on the Christians. Because that is sedition. That is disloyalty. That will destroy the Roman Empire. And so it did. But there you have it. Mm. So how did the Jews get away with it then? Uh, <laughs> the, the Jews believed in the Messiah. They were waiting for their Lord. Okay. But he didn't come. So they can, you know, give. Kind of get away with they can, yeah, they, they can fudge it a little bit, right? In fact, when the uh, when the Sanhedrin comes to Pilate and protests about Jesus, they're saying this Jesus guy is saying he's Lord, right? But but what do they say? But Caesar is our Lord. Mm-hmm. So the Jews would acknowledge the, the 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 lordship of Caesar as a kind of temporal lord, but they were waiting for their Messiah. And that's why there were numerous Jewish revolts that did break out because there were many, many so-called or pretender messiahs that would uh, that would happen. Um, the most famous is uh, Simon Bar Kokhba. This happened in the middle of the second century. Massive three-year independence for Israel. There was a civil war, and then that's when um, that's when uh, uh, Rome came down and just destroyed. And then uh, uh, that's when Rome totally destroyed Israel. It never happened again, but another re- revolution happened in AD 70. That's when Jerusalem, the temple, was destroyed. So there were all kinds of revolutions. Anytime the, the Jews found the Messiah. The Christians found the Messiah, too. But it was a very peaceful, you know, uh, messianic belief. But that's, I can go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. So the nation of Israel, okay, back in Exodus 19, and God said, if you obey my my commands and so on, and then you know we see that he makes all these commands, right? The ten commands. Had they obeyed externally as a nation, would they stay together as a nation? You understand my question? I mean, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the Mosaic covenant, yeah. the, the all of God's laws, uh, uh, God says, "Obey me, and you will live." Right. So you will live in the land. All will go well with you. But if you disobey, all the curses will come, including exile. Exile being the greatest curse, um, it's a, it's a, I guess it's a hypothetical question. Could Israel have obeyed and stayed in the land? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, yes, of course, because that was the deal that God gave them. And and why was God even giving them such a deal? 
And, and the other answer is it's no, because the people couldn't do it. Why, why was there even a necessity for the new covenant? Because the new covenant was going to fix the problem of the old covenant. The problem of the old covenant is people's hearts. Right. Hearts were full of stuff. Hearts were stone. They couldn't obey and they couldn't love God. So God said, I'm going to take out your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to make you love me by giving, by awakening your heart, giving you the Holy Spirit. So the new covenant was always, always, always necessary because the old covenant was dead. It was impossible to obey. But why did God even give them such a hypothetical? Is God teasing the people, right? Is God saying, if you obey, then you will live, but I know you can't obey, so ha ha. No. <laughs> he's saying, if you obey me, then you will live because he's re-dramatizing the story of Adam in the garden. He's trying to drive home the lesson of of, of the Garden of Eden to show the people of God the necessity for a Savior. Mm. So that would be a covenant of works, wouldn't it? In a it sense. Yeah. So for the nation itself. For the nation itself, when it comes to staying in the land, right. when it comes to prosperity in terms of agricultural, it, it was a covenant of works. But underneath the covenant of works is this perpetual covenant of grace that started with with the uh, end of Genesis chapter 3, right? As, as Paul says, the, a later covenant does not nullify the prior covenant. The prior covenant being covenant with Abraham, and then, you know, covenant ultimately given, shown, uh, at least in foreshadowings to Adam. The covenant of Abraham was always God's people's relationship to Israel. It was never the Mosaic covenant. That was never the, the real thing, so to speak. That's why um, all the time Paul's saying, Paul, Paul says, like, uh, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. Just go back to Abraham. Think but, about Abraham. But then we need somebody to fulfill covenant works, and that would be Christ himself. That would be Christ himself. He fulfilled the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, he fulfilled the Adamic covenant. Yes. Alright, let me pray and we'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for scripture, thank you so much for the gospel, thank you that this really obscure feast, the feast of weeks, uh, is actually, it's actually about Jesus. It's about the church, it's about the gospel, um, and there's so much to learn. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Right. Thank you, everybody.